course, in the context, Jesus is the one speaking, speaking to his disciples. The scripture says, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. This is a passage that we need to consider in connection with our overall subject of reconciliation, uh, subject of confession and forgiveness. This is the third message that we have focused on this particular topic, trying to work our way through passages in the New Testament and Jesus' teaching on the subject of confession and forgiveness. And in the context here, there is in verse 3, a call to rebuke, and then if repentance is um, given, if, if the person repents and turns from their sin, then the person is to be forgiven. And there is a forgiving spirit that Jesus is teaching here. Um, of course, Peter, remember, asked Jesus about forgiving how many times? Seven times. And Jesus, of course, increased that number to communicate the truth to Peter that it's 70 times seven. It's really having a forgiving spirit, a willingness to forgive like God. So we've looked at the subject of reconciliation, forgiveness. When I know that I have sinned against someone, what should I do? Matthew 5, 23 and 24 tells us that we need to prioritize Dealing with that, even in the context of worship, we are to suspend the act of sacrifice. That's the Old Testament form of worship that Jesus was talking to his disciples about. And they were to go first and pursue peace with their brother or sister. Why? Because in the context of Matthew chapter 5, judgment has come. Make peace before the judge is notified and you have to uh, pay uh, the penalty. So there's an urgency, uh, an urgency that actually uh, gives a priority even before worship, because this is a part of worship. Uh, it's a part of how we show our love to God as we show our love to neighbor. And if we're not right with our neighbor, how can we be right with God? So that's if I've sinned against someone, what should I do? Leave your gift, go first, pursue peace with your neighbor, make things right. Talked about what it would mean to go to someone and confess what I've done and seek their forgiveness. And this is something that as uh, Christians, it's not an automatic just because I know Christ's forgiveness, although that is a model for me, it doesn't mean I necessarily practice that in my life. And so we need biblical instruction. We need the teaching of scripture. Jesus gave plenty of it in the gospels. Uh, and it's a, a danger that we would sin against another brother or sister and cause them to stumble. I think that's the warning here in the first couple of verses. We're not going to take much time to focus on them. But when Jesus is speaking about little ones at the end of verse 2, I think if you trace that word or that idea out, little ones, he's talking about those who have come to believe in him. Jesus seeking to teach his disciples about what was necessary to enter into God's kingdom said, come here to a little child and said, whoever humbles himself like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he called his disciples to be like little children, humble in that way. 
Jesus even used that kind of language in John chapter 13 as he spoke to his disciples. He called them little children. John picked up on that. And you read John's epistles, you find, especially 1 John, him using that same phrase, little children. So little children, in terms of their humility, with it, which is what Christ emphasized, are actually a picture, a model for us as to how we ought to be and how we ought to take care not to offend a brother or sister in Christ. So if I have sinned against someone, yes, I need to go to them. But what if someone has sinned against me? What should I do? What if a brother or sister in Christ sins against me? And I do believe that's the context here. Verse three, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So the context of that kind of a relationship, does he or she need to confess that sin or can I just forgive them and get over with it? And uh, this passage is a helpful one to give us instruction on that matter because the scripture says here that we need to take heed to ourselves. That's literally what Jesus is saying there. You might see in verse three, be on your guard. But in the margin, literally take heed to yourselves. It's the same language that Paul used when he spoke to the Ephesian elders, when he called them to watch out in their own life, to watch over their own life, take heed to yourselves. This is something that we need to be careful to do, and we need to be careful not to sin against one another. But if we do, and that is impeding that relationship that we have with one another, we need to pursue being right with one another. J.C. Ryle, as he wrote on this passage, he said, few passages ought to humble Christians so much and to make them feel so deeply their need of the blood of atonement and the mediation of Christ. How often have we, uh, we have given offense and caused others to stumble? How often have we allowed unkind and angry and revengeful thoughts to nestle undisturbed in our hearts? These things ought not so to be. The more carefully we attend to such practical lessons as this passage contains, the more we shall recommend our religion to others and the more inward peace we shall find in our own souls. So there's something here for all of us. And I trust the Lord will give us instruction today. Now, this passage is one among many. But if we were to look at the subject of if someone sins against me, do they need to confess their sins? We'd find the teaching of God's word gives us a couple answers. One of the answers is there are some things that we ought to overlook. That just simply to overlook. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Proverbs 17, 9, he who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So there are times where because of our love for another, we don't seek them or go after them because of how they have sinned against us. Now, we have to be careful because if there's something that's happened and it's caused a rift in the relationship and that's not being restored and that's the issue, then yeah, we need to take care of it. But can you be like David was in the Old Testament, who, as he was even being chased by Saul, run through the countryside, so to speak? David had the opportunity to take Saul's life, but refused. He refused to act in vengeance. And he proved to Saul and all of his men that he was not a traitor. And he showed genuine love to his king. There were things that Saul did that David overlooked. And perhaps David's context, knowing what Saul was going through, was part of the reason that he did that. Remember, David spent some time in the throne room and got the spear thrown at him a couple times. 
He understood that there was something going on in Saul's mind that resulted in his actions. And though David didn't fully understand and, of course, was on the run and his life was in danger, he was showing forbearance and long-suffering with Saul. You could see that in terms of how David operated on other occasions, too. David wasn't perfect. When Nabal insulted him, he went after him or was going to go after him with vengeance. So we see the heart of someone who is sinful, who sometimes responds in unkind or unbiblical ways. But there are times where David was a great example of patience. And of course, there's no greater example than our Lord. Who was when he, when he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He committed himself to him who judged righteously. That's what our Lord did. They spit on him. They put a crown of thorns in his head. They pierced his hands and his feet. Even those on either side of him were insulting him before the one came to him. Jesus showed remarkable forbearance. And when it comes to family relationships, with this, this is a context of a brother who is sinning against you, there are times where we forbear and we do look at the pressures that someone is going through. We do consider the circumstances. We know that the way that they're acting is not typical, that something is going on and we understand they may not be acting right because of the broader context. I would say in a church family or in a family, we have plenty of opportunity to cover a multitude of sins to just forbear, to show love. Peter says it in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Can you imagine if we did rebuke one another for all the things that we do to one another? We sin all the time. And so there's some things we ought to really overlooked. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint, whoever finds fault with someone has cause to blame against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And again, Paul there, just as he does in Ephesians, draws attention to the great example that we have, the Lord, who forgives us, who bears along with us, and praise the Lord that he does. What if it's something that I just, I can't overlook, and the relationship is not being reconciled? And by the way, before I move on to that point, just would say, if you have a question about what to do in a certain circumstance. This whole issue of reconciliation, particularly between brothers and sisters, even within a home, marital conflict or anything, sometimes that just takes, it takes time and it takes the wisdom of God to apply to our specific situation. And it's not easy. So you might need some help. You might need some counsel. And if you need counsel, of course, as fellow believers, we're glad to give counsel, encourage one another. We are given God's word to give us guidance as to how to do that, and we can help one another. But uh, certainly sometimes we need to talk to someone and ask them, how can, I, how can I deal with this situation? Can you give me help? Well, I hope even in asking that question, pursuing that, your heart would be not just the absence of conflict, but ultimately, I want God to be glorified in my life. I want God to be glorified in my relationships. Do you want that? Do you desire that? We ought to desire that. Sometimes when a sin comes between God's people and we can't overlook it, it has to be dealt with. Certainly, there's some things that we can do. This passage gives some guidance as to how we relate to that person. But before I ever go to that person, 
uh, this is something I brought up at the end of the last uh, sermon on this subject, is we need to guard against the sins of our heart. If someone has sinned against us, it's very easy for us to sin back. We want to be avenged. We want the contempt shown to us to have something that meets that contempt. If somebody slanders you or gossips about you, talk behind their, uh, your back about you, if they repeatedly refuse to speak with you for some reason, they will not explain. Maybe they insulted you, they were unkind to you. What is our possible response? It's to sin back, maybe in the same way, maybe in a way that's even worse. We want to know that they feel the pain that we felt when they sinned against us. And so contempt, silence towards them, sometimes blowing up towards them, bitterness, resentment, anger. Sometimes it's self-pity, jealousy, envy, or a host of other things that we would do in response when someone sins against us. We need to be careful to be reminded that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Jesus committed himself to him who judges righteously in the context of the cross. When that person sins against me, I need to recognize I'm not the one who brings judgment upon them. That's not my place. Proverbs 24, 29, do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. And I thought that was interesting, the way that that was worded in that proverb. I will render to the man according to his work, because that sounds like what God does, who renders to each person according to their deeds. That's God's place. Now, not to take revenge and also, if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we claim to be a fellow brother and God is our father, then we need to pursue reconciliation. First Peter 1 22, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart for you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. One of the signs of eternal life is that I love my brother or sister in Christ. And I pursue, when the relationship is broken, I pursue reconciliation with them. Paul says it simply in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, live in peace with one another. Live in peace with one another. Live in shalom with one another. What is shalom? Brother Chad said shalom to me this morning. It's a great word. Shalom not only means the absence of hostility, but the presence of a positive relationship. It's not just a ceasefire. That's not shalom. Shalom is gathering together and having a mutual loving relationship. And that's what we need to pursue. Now, we obviously need to pursue in our own hearts, if any of these sins, if I'm pursuing any of these sins in response to what my brother or sister has done to me, I've got to deal with those sins in my heart. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter four, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Those sins of the heart have to be dealt with. Those are sins against God. Apart from any reconciliation with that person who sinned against me, I have to make sure that I'm not sinning in my heart against God. Now, there were some, some who say that's where you can stop, that once you've done that, then you're okay. They actually call it, someone has called it therapeutic forgiveness, which they define as just simply ceasing to feel resentment or bitterness. If somebody sinned against you, you just deal with it in your heart, and then you've forgiven them. It's all good. The problem is there's no restoration of the relationship. There's no recognition on the part of what the person who has sinned against you, there's no repentance and they've not 
dealt with that. And that needs to take place. Sometimes, depending on how big that thing may be, whatever that person did to you, once you deal with that sin before God, you may be able to let it go. I remember at one point being angry, bitter towards someone. And it wasn't just one person, it was multiple people. That's how bitterness tends to work. You just take a grudge and then take another one, take another one, and then you're just kind of loaded down with all of this bitterness. Multiple people. Every time somebody offends you, you take, you know, uh, a grudge against them. And in the case of, if I explain the whole circumstance to you, you might say, well, some of the people that interacted with you really did sin against you. This person had sinned against me, but it, it was something that I could let go. But I wasn't letting go. But when I dealt with some of the bigger issues and I finally confessed that sin to the Lord, I could let it go. I didn't have to go talk to the person. Just something the Lord was doing in my heart. So I just ask you, before we ever talk about rebuking your brother or your sister, are you struggling with any of those sins in your heart? And you need to confess those to the Lord. Do you have healthy relationships with the people around you when it comes to you? With your husband or wife, with your children, with others in the church, are you able to be open, to have the freedom, to speak to them? Is there an absence of anger, tension? Or is there a different story? Now, as much as lies within you, what did Paul say? Live peaceably with all men. Some people will not live peaceably with you. And those are the ones who try, right, our patience. But in the household of God, it should be different. Within the context of a church, it should be different. You should be able to work through whatever it is. And sometimes it may take some time because sometimes people sin against each other in extended, lengthy uh, times during the course and as that reconciliation takes place you have to work through those things well there has to be a willingness to work through it and really again a heart to say i don't want just the absence of conflict i want the lord to be glorified in my life i want the lord to be glorified in my relationships with my fellow christians i want the lord to be glorified in my marriage or in my church whatever the case may be jesus in the context of Luke chapter 17 here says, be on your guard. Why be on your guard? Because you don't want to cause someone else to stumble. And it's in that context that he then says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Okay. Now, if you rebuke someone and they do repent, you also need to be ready to do what it says at the end of verse three. And that's forgive. So if you don't deal with those heart sins, but you just rebuke someone, but you're not ready to forgive, you can realize how that would just complicate things even further. You mean you're willing to rebuke, but you're not willing to forgive, and then you continue really the lack of reconciliation, the, the conflict in the relationship, because you're willing to do the one because you want the person to stop sinning, but you're not wanting to forgive, which, of course, Christ gives the command to do both. <clears throat> To if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Remember Mark chapter 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. This forgiveness, this readiness to forgive needs to be a part of my heart attitude towards that person who has sinned against me. And that's a mirror if we behave that way, if we live that way, that's a mirror of the Lord, who is Psalm 86, verse 5, you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. God is inclined to forgive. He's inclined to show mercy. He's inclined to pardon. But you have to ask for it. 
right? Not everybody is pardoned. Not everyone is forgiven. Why aren't they? Because they don't come to God. Someone might say, well, God can just forgive whatever he wants to. Well, God is a just God and a forgiving God. Justice must be done. And even in the process of forgiveness, he has really outlined a way for a person to be forgiven. They're not paying for their sins. Christ paid for the sin. But the call to every sinner is to come to God in repentant faith, and then God will forgive them for their sins. But those who don't come to him in repentant faith will not have their sins forgiven. But when they're forgiven, what does the scripture say? He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He casts them into the bottom of the deepest sea. Right? God is a God who forgives, and when he forgives, he does not remember those sins to us. He does not bring those up to us. And that's when we think about how we ought to forgive. We ought to forgive in the same way. I don't believe you can forgive and forget. You can't forget some things. You can choose not to bring it up and not to cause someone else to remember. Or if it comes up in your own mind, you got to put it out of your own mind. Ken Sandy, who has... Uh, a number of books, things that he's written on this subject, The Peacemaker, Resolving Everyday Conflict, says when forgiveness is given, this includes the following promises. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident, the sin that has been done against me. Secondly, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Thirdly, I will not talk to others about this incident. And lastly, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So if you rebuke someone, are you ready to do that? Is that really the purpose of wanting to talk to them about what they have done? Or do you want to bring it up so that you can punish them further? And I would also ask you, in context of this passage and then the broader new testament passage are you right with your brothers and sisters in christ or have you let your son or the son go down upon your anger that's when you give place to the devil that's when it makes even it even harder to actually reconcile when you've when you've lived in that way there's a early church writer who you may have heard of jerome in 374, this is the, the one responsible for the translation of the Latin Vulgate, Latin version, common version of the Bible. Wrote a letter in 374 to his aunt on his mother's side. Her name was Castorina. And he said this. The apostle and evangelist John rightly says in his first epistle that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. For since murder often springs from hate, the hater, even though he has not yet slain his victim, is at heart a murderer. He's writing this to his aunt. Why do you ask? Do I begin in this style? Simply that you and I may both lay aside past ill feeling and cleanse our hearts to be a habitation for God. Be angry, David says, and sin not, or as the apostle more fully expresses it, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. What then shall we do in the day of judgment upon whose wrath the sun has gone down, not one day, but many years? The Lord says in the gospel, if you bring your gift to your altar, then remember there that your brother has something against you. Leave there that your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Woe to me, wretch that I am. Woe, I had almost said to you also. This long time past, we've either offered no gift at the altar or have offered it while cherishing anger without a cause. How have we been able in our daily prayers to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, while our feelings have been at variance with our words and our petition inconsistent with our conduct? Therefore, I renew the prayer with which I made a year ago in a previous letter. 
that the Lord's legacy of peace may indeed be ours and that my desires and your feelings may find favor in his sight. Soon we shall stand before his judgment seat to receive the reward of harmony restored or to pay the penalty for harmony broken. In case you shall prove unwilling, I hope that it may not be so to accept my advances. I, for my part, shall be free. For this letter, when it is read, will ensure my acquittal. Now, he may understand the final judgment a little different, but the reality is we will stand before the Lord and give an account of the things done in our body. And it does matter what we do with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he was expecting that if they should not reconcile that his letter to her would be read at the judgment seat as one of the words that he spoke, although in writing, and God, of course, upon that evidence, who knows all things, and I don't know how that's all going to look, but the reality is if his aunt never sought to reconcile or never responded to such a plea, what would that leave for her testimony of being a child of God if she refused repeatedly to rec reconcile with her nephew? someone who had pleaded on more than one occasion to get right. So what's our heart? And I, I, I love that letter in part because it shows a heart that is seeking to reconcile. Is your heart to reconcile, to pursue that? You say, you don't know what this person did to me. I may not, but do you know what you've done to Christ? Do I know what I've done to Christ? Do I know how I've sinned against God? No one has ever sinned against you like you've sinned against God. And he has forgiven you. So we deal with our heart. We have to be ready to forgive if we rebuke someone. But notice what it says there in verse three. Be on your guard if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. What if he doesn't repent? What if she doesn't repent? Does that mean I'm not supposed to forgive? Well, that's the clear implication of what Jesus is saying here. And in the context of the New Testament, we understand this isn't the only passage that deals with this subject. If a person does rebuke another person, the context in which they speak to their brother or sister in Christ is important. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said that needs to be done usually, and he said it there, it needs to be done in private. It's between you and that person alone. It really does need to be sin. According to verse three, it says, if your brother sins, it's the word Hamartano, which is a form of the, of the noun hamartia. Hamartiology is the doctrine of sin in scripture. That word means to miss the mark. The mark is God's standard. So when I think about confronting or rebuking someone else, it does need to be an actual sin. This is not just being petty or they're not doing what I want them to do. This actually is a sin against you. Sin is the transgression of God's law. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's being without law, disobeying God's law. So if someone does sin, rebuke them. And that word rebuke is used, Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels is oftentimes rebuking either things or people. He rebukes the sea, so that's a thing. But he also rebukes demons, spirits. He calls them to come out of certain individuals who are indwelt by them. He also rebukes his disciples. Remember when his disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven upon these people who didn't receive them into the town? Luke chapter 9 records that Jesus rebuked them because that wasn't the spirit that they ought to have towards the world that doesn't receive them. 
It's not, and that may be why they were called the Sons of Thunder. They were wanting to respond in force for those who in some way offended them. That's not what Jesus was about, and he taught them so. And Jesus, you could say, if you follow his rebukes through the Gospels, he's always right. He always rebukes what is wrong. When it came to demons, when it came to people, he's always rebuking, and he always gets it right. But if you look at people in the Gospels, and even in the broader context of God's word, you see people sometimes getting it wrong when they rebuke. Because, right, Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus is foretelling his crucifixion, eventually resurrection, and Peter rebukes Jesus. He actually took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him and when Jesus turned around, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Peter was wrong because he didn't have the proper understanding. And sometimes the rebuke that we may give to someone else isn't right because we're trying to apply the wrong standard. So that's why I say it is important that what if the person has done something, it truly does need to be a sin. According to God's word can't just be something they've done that's not my preference. It needs to be a sin. You look at the broader context of God's word and you find Jacob rebuking Joseph for his dreams, telling his dreams when those dreams actually came from God. You find the disciples rebuking people who were bringing children to Jesus. And Jesus rebuked them because Jesus welcomed children. The Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples because they were crying out his praises. And Jesus said, if they get silent, the rocks are going to cry out. So who's right in those circumstances? Okay, you might think, well, yeah, it's possible I get it wrong and I have to be careful. We do have to be careful. It is possible to get it right. Somebody has sinned against me or you and, and you know that they've sinned. It is possible to correctly say, that was wrong. And have you considered that that's a sin against God? Even the thief on the cross, when he rebuked his fellow thief on the other side of Jesus, he got it right. Don't you fear God? That man wasn't fearing God. He wasn't fearing Christ. He was calling for Christ. If you really are the son of God, get us down from here. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, that in the context of his preaching of God's word, he was to reprove and rebuke and exhort. And it's on the basis of God's word that that rebuke takes place. So if I'm going to rebuke, I'm going to take that step and express disapproval to someone. That's what rebuke means for what they did, for their sin against, of course, it's against God, but it's also against me. I'm objecting to what they have done as worthy of blame. It's a sin. But I, I think it's helpful to ask a series of questions and just consider, first of all, to help me, to guide me in my relationship. And even as I think about doing that, what is my relationship with them? Is this a brother or sister in Christ? If this is a brother or sister in Christ, then they're not only related to me, they're also related to God. This is one of God's children that I'm going to talk to. And if I'm one of God's children as well, that may be the reason. There needs to be right and good and holy relationships. I need to love them with proper affection and vice versa. Another question is, have I humbled myself before I begin to talk to them? How humble do I need to be? Well, again, Matthew 18, where Jesus is talking about relationships, he, it's that context in which he brings a child and says, this is the kind of humility that you need to have. The humility of a child. And then, According to what biblical standard am I judging their actions? Did they truly sin against God? It's not that they failed to meet up to my expectations, but they actually failed up to, to meet up to God's. Sometimes we do set up our own standard 
of how a person ought to be doing what they're doing. And we're not judging them based upon whether or not it's a sin. It's just a matter of, I don't like what they're doing. So it needs to be the proper standard of judgment. Turn, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. A rebuke is going to come in the context of judgment. You're making a judgment about someone, something that they did. And I want you to notice here what Jesus says in his teaching. He says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I want you to pay attention there to verse 5. When Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye, he's directing self-judgment first. But he's not saying that you shouldn't judge your brother. Just need to recognize that the log in your eye is bigger than the speck in his. And when you start to really consider what that person has done, and then you look at your own life and you say, have I ever done that? Do I ever do that? Have I sinned against them as they've sinned against me? Boy, that's a time when oftentimes we come to a place of humility. Because we realize I've sinned that way too. Paul's instruction in Galatians chapter 6 is, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now that could be a looking to yourself backwards, but there's also a looking forward that indicates, I believe what Paul's saying, is that there's potential that you might sin against that person. You may not have done that, but you're capable of doing that. So if it is a proper standard of judgment biblically, have I judged myself first? If I'm going to go to rebuke this person, have I sinned in that way? And you might go to that person and say, look, I, I, have, I have sinned like this before, and I just want to talk to you about something that you said or that you did. Because I know it was a sin against God. I displeased him, and I also hurt people. may have hurt a person. It's just, it's remembering the context that I'm not, I am not God. I am not perfectly holy. I am a sinner. And when I really think about what someone has done, Oftentimes I find myself in their shoes. That ought to condition the way that I come to them. I think it's also proper. This was helpful from the author that I've quoted, Unpacking Forgiveness, Chris Bronze. He asked the question, basically paraphrasing, is this a pattern of behavior for this person? Is this out of the norm for this person? Or is this, is this something they do all the time? And something that they don't do all the time should temper the way that I think about approaching and talking to them. If it's something they do all the time, it may just be that the Lord has brought that to your attention so that they can hear from someone who observes them, so that they realize it's a pattern in their life. You may be, by your rebuke, a means of helping them to obey the Lord and bring blessing to their life as they repent of their sin. Another thing to do is that as you actually go to them, and I think as you go back, if you would, to Luke chapter 17, there is a context of a direct communication. I read Jerome's letter. I don't know what his proximity was to his aunt. We have telephone communication, we can communicate via text or email or whatever. I do think when it comes to these kinds of matters, it's best, if you can, to deal in person, face-to-face. -face. 
Look at verse three, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So there's this, there's an interaction with them. And in the context of that, you might just want to take a little time to listen to their side of the story. Sometimes what happens when we sin against one another is we have a misunderstanding. Sometimes we have a misunderstanding without actually truly even sinning. We just, we weren't communicating accurately. And as a result of that, people's feelings were hurt. But when we get back together and actually listen to each other, we say, oh, oh, oh. And we understand. And there isn't the same kind of hurt because there's a greater understanding. So it could be something that is a misunderstanding that needs to be cleared up. You, and I'll just read to you from a, a little a, a book that was helpful to me in this subject. Uh, Jay Adams, the book is called From Forgiven to Forgiving. He says that when you rebuke, you ought to, and I'm using his words here, rebuke tentatively. That is to say, when you go, quoting here, you must do so with caution. You go with the facts as you see them. You present the facts. Then you wait for any possible forthcoming explanation that may clear up a misunderstanding or that may mitigate the situation. If there is none, the offense has been committed. And if your brother or sister repents, you are to forgive him or her. Okay, so it's possible that you may just be clearing up a misunderstanding, which would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Because there's reconciliation there. There's a seeing eye to eye. But if there was sin and there is confession, and there is repentance, then you can also see eye to eye and you can relate rightly to one another again. I don't know if you've ever had a phone call from someone or someone says to you, I need to talk to you about something. Do you remember when you said X, Y, Z? Do you remember when you did this? Do you remember when you were angry and you said this, or maybe you refused to talk to me. And it's not just the remembering of that. Sometimes people don't remember what they've done. And sometimes they don't remember it accurately, but then you have an opportunity to say, well, this is what I thought you said. And you may have to refresh their memory. But I think it's appropriate to ask questions versus laying the blame with accusations so that their conscience, if they're a child of God, is stirred. Do you remember when you said X, Y, Z to me? Do you think that was loving? Did you think that was kind? Oh, that really hurt me. And I'll tell you why and you explain. Do you remember when you said or did this? Was that respectful to me? Is that kind as a brother or sister in Christ? And then, in other words, you're holding them to the biblical standard. You're asking them a question so it gives them the opportunity to reflect and then confess repent nathan came to david and told him that story about the man with the lamb the rich man came and took it and cooked it and gave it to his guest david came down with a severe judgment on the man the rich man who had done it and then nathan said you're the man and then nathan laid it out he laid out what david had done in terms of his sins and here's the other side. Here's the one who's receiving the rebuke. Have you ever received a rebuke like that? What did you do? Did you argue? Did you defend yourself based upon what they did to you? Or did you humble yourself and ask for their forgiveness? And that's really where we need to where we need to get to, it's the reconciliation of the relationship. When someone comes to us and they confront us with something that we've done, we need to humble ourselves. So it's humility on both sides. It's humility in going, it's humility in receiving. If I'm humble in receiving and I own what I have done, will you forgive me? I am so sorry. But not just I'm sorry, and not just I apologize, but will you forgive me? And if you ask for forgiveness and they grant that forgiveness, which they should if they're like God, 
then the person who forgives, remember, is giving those commitments. I'm not going to bring this up again. I'm not going to raise this to myself or to you. I'm not going to dwell on this. You make that commitment by forgiving, and I will choose not to bring it up to myself or anyone else ever again. It's, I love what one person says when I talk to them about, about this subject, it's all under the blood. It's under the blood. And praise the Lord, there is blood that covers a multitude of sins if we sin. If he repents, forgive him. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on this verse, says, this expression is remarkable. Just that expression, if he repents, forgive him. He says, it doubtless cannot mean that we're not to forgive men unless they do repent. At this rate, there would be much bitterness constantly kept alive. Now, I think whenever J.C. Rao wrote and said that, I'd like to see what else he wrote on the subject of forgiveness. But I do think that he's, he's conflating those two issues of the sins of the heart and the reality of that transaction of forgiveness. Because, no, we can't dwell on the sins of the heart. We can't have those sins of the heart dominating. We have to confess and forsake those. But in the context here, if the man or the woman, the brother or sister does not repent, what's the implication? No, you're not to give forgiveness. That doesn't mean you are vindictive or hateful. But if they don't repent, what does Jesus say to do in Matthew chapter 18? What's he say to do? I need to take somebody else. Upon involving someone else in the circumstance, I have the mouth of two or three witnesses who become witness not only to what I'm saying, but also what they're saying as I involve someone else that may actually clarify the situation, things that I didn't see. But if they really have sinned against me and they won't repent, the involvement of someone else brings more weight. We need to consider Matthew chapter 18 in detail but it brings more weight to the circumstance so that they will see how serious it is that they're not repenting and turning from the sin. And if after you go through that process, they still don't repent, what does Jesus say? Well, at a certain point, you've got to tell the church. This person is not repenting and turning from their sin. Church needs to be told. And if that person continues in that path of sin, then they need to be put out of the church because the church is a group of people who are, this ought to define us this morning, repenting and turning from our sins. Repenting and turning from our sins. Repenting and turning from our sins. Are you repenting? Now, I could say, have you repented? That's something that we've done in the past. But as a Christian, I don't stop repenting. That is the very beginning when I come to Christ of my turning away from sin. And yes, there's an initial repentance. And when I turn from my sins, yes, I'm justified. But all my life long, the life of a Christian, this is one of Martin Luther's points in his 95 Theses, the life of a Christian is a repentant life. Are you repenting? Are you turning from sin? Are you killing sin wherever you see it? Are you putting it to death? Or are you letting it rain? And for someone who doesn't turn from sin, even when a brother or sister comes to them and talks to them and it's made known that they have sinned, they won't turn from it. That's a serious sign. It's possibly a sign they don't know the Lord at all. Ryle went on to say that when this verse, when Jesus said, if he repents, forgive him, he says, it does mean that where there is no repentance or regret for an injury done, there can be no renewal or cordial friendship or complete reconciliation between man and man. So he's acknowledging that that has to take place. And that's the goal. That's the goal. The reconciliation that takes place. That's what we aim for. We seek to live peaceably with all men. There are certainly those who will not do that. And may God help us. May God help us.
May God help you. May God help me to practice reconciliation with my brother and sister in Christ. Whether that's the one or the ones who are nearest to me in my own family or within the church of God. Ryle, in his comments in his sermon on this passage, he said, the doctrine laid down by our Lord in this place is deeply humbling. It shows most plainly the wide contrariety or opposition which exists between the ways of the world and the gospel of Christ. Who does not know that pride and arrogance and high-mindedness and readiness to take offense and implacable determination never to forget and never to forgive are common among baptized men and women? Thousands will go to the Lord's table and even profess to love the gospel, who fire up in a moment at the least appearance of what they call offensive conduct and make a quarrel out of the merest trifles. Thousands are perpetually quarreling with all around them, always complaining how ill other people behave and always forgetting that their own quarrelsome disposition is the spark which causes the flame. He says one general remark applies to all such people. They are making their own lives miserable and showing their unfitness for the kingdom of God. An unforgiving and quarrelsome spirit is the surest mark of an unregenerate heart. What says the scripture? Whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? What is Jesus counseling here? teaching here, not just counseling, but giving as instruction, not just that one-time forgiveness, but in verse four, a repentant, uh, excuse me, a forgiving spirit. A forgiving spirit. Do you have a forgiving spirit? Do I have a forgiving spirit? And then he says, Ryle says, let us leave the whole passage with jealous self inquiry may the lord help us now, i may not have dealt with or answered a question that you may have about a particular circumstance i do trust that we're going to go through more of jesus teaching on this subject and even referenced it today in matthew chapter 18 but I think the principles here are clear, even from a short passage like we considered here in Luke chapter 17. Reconciliation is our goal. That's our Lord's goal. That's his purpose for us. May the Lord help us to live that out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Our sin has made such a mess. If we were to look at our own lives and before we even came to you, but even after we've come to you, we oftentimes don't practice biblical reconciliation. So we pray, Lord, that you'd renew our minds that you would grant to us not only understanding, but a willingness to pursue obedience to you. And Lord, we trust that even today in our lives, because we're sinners, if we pray that daily prayer, Lord Jesus, that you gave us, that there'll be sins today that we need to confess. In the context of even a message like this, Lord, we know there are times where we've just got to go make things right with someone. Maybe something we can overlook, but if not, Lord, pray that we guard against the sins of the heart and then pursue in love and grace reconciliation with that person. Give us wisdom, Lord. Sometimes we want to reconcile with people who are outside the household of faith and they do not yet have the spirit of God within to help them. We pray that we might, as much as it lies within us, to live peaceably with all men, 
that we'd pursue that right kind of reconciliation even with them, but understand even if they don't, that you see our efforts as you did with this letter written so long ago. Pray that we might be a repentant people with forgiving spirits, seeking to live right in fellowship and peace, shalom with other people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.